while you're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. This is Mark Lintzenmeyer. For episode 8, I'll be talking to Tim Quirk, the frontman for Too Much Joy, which was active in the late 80s through the 90s. We'll be talking about songs from that band, as well as from his more recent recording project, Wonderlick. The song you're hearing now is Too Much Joy's biggest single, Crush Story, from 1991's Serial Killers. That is C-E-R-E-A-L. Because they're funny guys. I enjoyed talking to Tim about his punk aesthetic, how one gets to be the front man for a punk band, about sampling, and mostly about lyrics, because Tim is a writer. He's a well-known thinker in the digital music industry, having worked at a high level in Google Play, Rhapsody, and other tech companies. You can read a lot of his writing at TooMuchJoy.com or TBQuirk.com. For more information about this podcast, please check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com and our parent podcast, PartiallyExaminedLife.com. I want to remind you that we are currently accepting song self-exam videos from our musician listeners, where you record yourself explaining a song in the same way we do here. We'll share it with our audience, and you may end up as a guest on the show. Mr. Tim Quirk. Hello. First of all, when I asked you to do this, you know, I just had these old albums sitting on my shelf. I didn't know that you were a big-time industry mogul, but I've been watching your presentations and stuff in the last couple of days. Pretty fascinating stuff. Yes, I'm a, I'm a titan of industry now. <laughs> but apparently out of touch with the... Uh, I was <laughs> in, uh, in looking up your essays, I also see criticisms of your essays, being a public figure. Hard. Well, the funny thing is I've been saying the same shit for 15 years since I first worked at Rhapsody. And I got really accustomed to going to these panels and conferences and giving my speeches and making my points and being met with just rapturous applause and acclaim. And then I went to work for Google, and I kept saying the exact same things. But all of a sudden, it was no longer, oh, musician Tim Quirk says this. Now it was evil Google exec says this. It must be terrible. It was really shocking. It was like one of those, you know, what's the, the Joe Walsh line? It's like, I haven't changed. Everybody else has. But now you're out of that, and you're running freeform development. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I have a startup that's basically trying to take all the lessons I learned while I was at Google Play about free-to-play mobile gaming distribution and apply them to the music space. Because basically all the shit I was saying when I was at Rhapsody and when I was at Google, the point of it wasn't that musicians should just be content with making no money online. It's that you have to accept this is the reality and you have to figure out how to adapt to it. So we're building a platform that will actually help musicians make money even when fans aren't paying directly for their music. That's the theory anyway. Yeah, I just tried out your super app this morning. And I've also, you know, in listening to your talking about how you were doing the annotations and just all the manual work that goes into what you were doing at Rhapsody and at Google, then as a Spotify user was missing that. Just the fact that the Too Much Joy spinoff band, The It's, it has a page on there. The first of which albums is actually by that band. And the second two, yeah. this is this I've run into constantly. I mean, one of my own bands, New People, I didn't know there was a 1960s R&B band that was called that, but those are the two songs that are on some uh, compilation that come up first when you look for my band. Yeah, well, it's a common problem. There's a, you know, Conor Oberst's punk band, Desapercitos. If you go to their page on eMusic, there's their two albums, but then there's also a whole bunch of albums by a Mexican group, I think, called Desapercitos. And the joke in the industry for a long time has been, if you want to make a lot of money in online music, just name your band Various Artists. <laughs> Well, it does seem like this whole uh, globalization of band names is promoting some communication that often when bands are double listed like that, when there's two bands of the same name, it's one is a rap group as if these two worlds would not be aware of each other. So looking up Crowded House and like over half the albums are some rap group, which then changed their name 
And yet, if you still look up Crowded House on Spotify, you'll still get all those albums now named a different thing, but they're still, they're still yeah. in the search. I'm working on a lyric right now, and I was going back and forth debating with myself. I wanted to include the English beat as part of the lyric, and I was like, oh, shit, I can't do that because they're only the English beat in the States, and the song will make no sense anywhere else where people just know them as the beat. So let's get into the songs. The first song, one of your most famous things, at least from your most famous album, King of Beers from Serial Killers, 1991. You want to give a little intro to it, and then we'll play it, and then we'll talk more about it? Sure. I would introduce it by saying it's basically the platonic ideal, probably, of a Too Much Joy song, in that it's got some poppy bits, it's got some punky bits. Most importantly, it works great live. It's kind of unfuck when you play it live, and there's lots of bits you can shout along to. So after we wrote and recorded this song, I doubt there's a single show we've played when this song wasn't part of the set list. And Plato was very specific that there are forms for individual bands. I Ah, studied that. Gonna feel like hell tomorrow So I won't go to sleep tonight Na-na-na-na-na-na sorrow Everything's gonna be alright I am in So these are the two elements that I most like in music, besides prog, which you have huge amounts of prog in here. Uh, well, you have cool harmonies, I should say that. 
It's weird listening to the studio version because I'm just so accustomed to, God, over 20 years of playing it live. There's the acoustic guitars, which we never play live, but there's also that weird synthesizer bit during the bridge that Paul Fox, our overproducer, put in. And actually, he put in at our insistence, I should make it clear. It was like we demanded he get the cheesiest, 70-est sound that he could. So it sounded like, you know, an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer show gone awry, basically. (laughs) Well, that's what makes sort of post-punk so interesting that it it takes the knowledge of all that was accomplished in the early 70s and hopefully puts it to better use. Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's exactly what we were trying to do. Tell me a little more about your role in the band in terms of how folks interacted. I read on your site that it was often you would just write lyrics and then one of the other guys, Jay, or uh, somebody else would come up with music to go with it. Is that actually how it works or is it you come up with a melody or how, how did this one happen musically? Generally speaking, there's three different approaches, and I can't remember which one this one was. My best guess is this was one where there was a lyric first, and I gave it to the guys, and they wrote some music. So that was one way we'd do it, would be lyrics first. The other way would be one of the band members would have a riff and would bring it in, and we'd just start jamming on it, and you'd end up with you know parts of a song, whether it's a chorus or a verse or a verse and a chorus, and then I would write lyrics to the music. And in both cases, I always had a uh, notebook lying around with stray bits, either you know ideas for song titles that I never got around to writing until there was a song to put it to, or little stray thoughts and lines that I'd end up building a song around. My guess with this one is that there was some or all of the lyrics written first, and I probably brought it into rehearsal and we wrote it as a band. It just has that sound to it. Although sometimes I'd just hand, I'd copy lyrics and I'd give them to Jay and Sandy and each of them would go off and they'd come back with their own ideas of it. And we'd build some Frankenstein's monster of a song out of it. Well, so at least when Jay or Sandy takes this, they have the lyrics and the singing is part of it. I mean, they're both singers as well, right? Because this does not sound like the kind of band where... Peter Buck has come up with his self-contained guitar line and then Michael Stipe overlays something. Like, this is much more organic than that. The majority of the songs, and this was probably one of them, yes. And in fact, you can even, there's a lyric that just goes, na 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 sorrow. And while I can't guarantee this is what happened, I'm pretty sure what happened is that was going na 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 And I was like, oh, sorrow, sorrow should go here, na 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 sorrow. And the original plan was to fill in the na na na's, and I probably tried and tried and tried to come up with something that was better and more expressive than Na-na-na-na-na-na-sorrow. And I ultimately realized Na-na-na-na-na-na-sorrow was the greatest lyric I would ever write in my life, and there was no way of topping it. And I'm not being facetious. I actually, I frequently cite that line as my favorite thing that I have ever, ever written. Well, it's a breaking the fourth wall. It's a, it's a postmodern just saying, screw you, lyric writing. I wouldn't put it that way. I would say, to me, this is the thing I love about music, and I humbly hope that that line accomplishes that, especially the type of music I like. There are these poppy bits, there are these pop trappings that at one and the same time, they're expressing and hopefully erasing despair. That's what my favorite music does. I'm going to go off on this weird tangent here, but there was a period of time shortly after my best friend died of cancer just after he turned 40, and my wife and I were both just like utterly, utterly depressed. And it was right around the time that Flaming Lips' Soft Bullet had come out. And it had that song on it called Waiting for a Superman. And it was obvious that whole album was about death. I, I think Wayne Coyne's father had died or was about to die. I don't know the details. But it was clear to me that he had gone through something similar to me. And that song really helped me in working through my own grief. It, it's just this really, really fucking sad song. And I was listening to it obsessively over and over again. 
I remember we live in this house in the Oakland Hills and there's this redwood deck out back. And my wife and I were staining that deck this summer after our friend had died. And I had a boom box. We used to listen to music on cassettes and I was just playing that song over and over again. I was like, hey, I want you to hear the song. And we're both sitting there staining the deck and crying as we're listening to the song. And then I remember they came through San Francisco and they were playing and we were going in to see them. And she was saying, I can't listen to that song. It's just too sad. And I said, no, no. The thing about that song is it doesn't try to say, don't be sad. It just expresses your sadness so well that it actually alleviates it a little bit. And then weirdly, when the Flaming Lips played the song that night, that's pretty much the way he introduced it. He said, sometimes you're so sad that all you can do is express that sadness and it helps a little bit. So that was a really rambling and pretentious way to talk about Nananananas' sorrow, but I actually believe all that. Let's get at where the emotional center of this is. I mean, you described this as autobiographical, whereas I had originally heard this as setting up a character of some sort, but perhaps those things are not particularly different. That's kind of the point of the song, is that if you're saying I'm invincible, I have no fear, I am benevolent, all this stuff, then obviously it is sort of putting yourself up as a character. It's you know, putting yourself in a mood. Well, yeah, I would say probably every song on a Too Much Joy album through Serial Killers, it had literally never occurred to me that the songs could be about or should be about anyone other than me, <laughs> with one or two exceptions. Every single line and every single song on our first couple of records is all just random stuff from my journal turned into songs, not even notebooks. A lot of times it's just written down on cocktail napkins in bars and it gets all soaked and you can't remember what you actually wrote and what you try to replace it with turns out to be better. And I remember it wasn't until I was reading some review of one of our records, a particular song on a record, where the reviewer said, oh, the character in this song. And I remember reading that and going, what character? It's me. This is totally autobiographical. <laughs> but it was this really profound moment because that was the first time I had this sort of like, oh, duh, I can write about other people and other things. It doesn't have to be about me. And then I started trying. And I think I'm better at this sort of expression than others, but pretty much – Anything that you see here, I was suffering, you know, in my teens and early 20s from the romantic delusion that the purpose of art was to express your soul as honestly as you possibly could. And I also was suffering from the delusion that my own thoughts were very special and unique and unlike anyone else's and very important. And the important thing was to capture them, not to really go that much deeper into them. Just do as pure an expression as you could. And that's the type of thing you think when you're drinking a lot. You really don't need to go much deeper than that. You're just like, oh, that's a profound insight I just had. I'm going to write it down and then I'm going to sing it. And when you have a bunch of people who are like, oh, that sounds like me. I'm going to sing along with it. You're like, oh, OK, good. I did my job. That's all I need to do. This song pretty much sums that up. But I have said before, I was very proud one day when a friend, a guy I'd gone to college with, he was living in Chicago and a band was coming through Chicago we were talking about our crowds and the reputation we were getting of being this sort of comedy rock or frat rock band. And mm -hmm. the song King of Beers is one example of that. It's very easy to look at the song and just go like, oh, they're just a bunch of jokers, clowns, getting the audience to shout along drunkenly. If you only listen to the chorus, yeah. Exactly. And that's all they're about. And what my friend said is, you know, if you actually pay attention to the lyrics, it's not just saying, hey, go get drunk. Getting fucked up is fun. We're going to get fucked up together. There's like some sorrow and some despair in there. It's like, yeah, well, that is the idea. I've always had a what I call the public swimming pool philosophy of songwriting, which particularly applies to Too Much Joy in that there's a shallow end of our songs and there's a deep end of our songs. And we let the listener frolic in whichever area of the public swimming pool they feel most comfortable I was watching a live clip of you guys, and it, it was a rambunctious audience. What I've wondered about is, you know, with a band with punk leanings, especially describing yourself as, you know, you're the singer, you've got these journals, you're not necessarily 
coming up with fully formed songs that you can then say, hey, band, this is my fully formed song. This is really awesome. Can't you hear that it's awesome? And you want to support me. And in fact, let me be the lead singer on everything. That unless you have like an objectively, I could be on an American Idol kind of voice, then it seems like the, maybe the reason this band works is because you met these guys when you were young enough that you kind of, in other words, <laughs> many of our listeners might have journals of similar things that they think are brilliant and have similar passion, but would find it hard to impress a random group of people enough to be their backing band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the story of how the band formed is, it's actually a story of, of loss and betrayal and that Sandy, the bass player and I, it basically formed the band together with two different friends, two guys who aren't in the band anymore. And the whole idea was literally just to play Clash songs at high school dances because we'd go to these high school dances and we grew up in Scarsdale, New York. So, you know, it was like upper middle class. There were lots of rich kids with synthesizers just utterly mauling Southern rock and Led Zeppelin <laughs> songs and the classic rock canon. And we'd go and we're like, oh, these are so depressing. Like, why isn't anybody playing The Clash? It would be so much better if someone was playing The Clash. And then we both had this sort of aha moment at the same time. We looked at each other we're like – Songs can't be that hard to learn. So Sandy and I went to learn how to play our instruments at the same time. He decided to play bass, and I was going to play guitar. And we found this guy in, in you know, a second-floor office in White Plains who would give you a half-hour lesson. So we, this was before we could drive, so our parents would have to drop us off there. And Sandy would like get his bass lesson for the first half hour, and then he'd sit there for the second half hour while I got my guitar lesson. And we had a different friend, Chris, who was going to play drums, and another friend, Aaron, who was going to play rhythm guitar. And the thing was, Sandy could actually play his instrument. He like had a natural aptitude for it. So he learned how to play bass really fast. I still haven't learned how to play guitar. And the other two guys were more like me than like Sandy. So I didn't know it, but Sandy was getting frustrated and wanted to move a lot faster. So one day, one summer day in Scarsdale on a weekend, I heard somebody blaring Police on My Back, a song The Clash covered on Sandinista. And I was like, oh, I thought Sandy and I were the only people who knew the Clash in our town. I'm going to go find out whoever's playing police on my back and I'm going to have a new friend. So I followed the sound of the music and it was only like a block away. And I stupidly had not realized my friend Sandy lived a block away from me. So I followed the sound to its source. It's coming out of Sandy's backyard and it's not the record. It's Sandy and Jay Blumenfield and Tommy Vinton, who became the drummer and guitar player in Too Much Joy, playing police on my back. And... You know, it's sort of like walking in on your wife or your girlfriend having sex with another guy, right? I'm like, uh, hi, guys. And they're all sort of like awkward and embarrassed. They're like, oh, hi, Tim. I'm like, what's going on? Well, we're forming a band. Oh, Sandy, I thought we were forming a band. He's like, well, you can sing. I was like, oh, okay. So I became the, I wouldn't even call it singing. I became the vocalist. And because I am not a particularly gifted vocalist, as an evolutionary tactic, we developed this method of harmonizing where none of us had the greatest voice. I definitely had the weakest voice of the three of us. But when you blend them together in ways inspired by, if not quite reaching the heights of the Beach Boys, you come up with something almost like one good singer. Well, yeah, very much inspired by The Clash. I definitely hear that. Yeah, although, I mean, Mick Jones can sing, and, and Joe Strummer can mean it, man. Exactly. At least the sound that I associate most with them is the Mick Jones doing the nice harmonizing or background, sort of holding the melody down, whereas Joe Strummer is actually singing lead. Yeah. Yeah, that seemed to be the template. And then I guess you earned their respect over time in terms of your lyric writing. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had that. I've always described myself, I'm not a singer. I'm a writer who was in a band. And over time, I learned how to be an effective front guy. 
I stood in the middle and I shouted, so it looked like I was the lead singer. But if you actually listen to the songs, at least up and through Mutiny, it's very rare that there is a single lead vocal on any one of our songs. One of the three of us might be singing lead on one line or even half of a line, and then someone else takes over, and then all two or three of us combine. That's just the way we evolved. So you were describing the narrator's dilemma, <laughs> you were at the time, as giving a pretty accurate picture of alcoholism. <laughs> that it's not just the feeling invincible, but it's the acknowledging that you're, why am I such an asshole? Why am I here alone? And the bridge that you actually state straight up, I take a trip, but anywhere I'd go, my head would come along with me. Yeah, although, and to be fair, that line, not in that form, but that sentiment is copped from a Richard Price novel. The guy's just having this interior monologue, and he's this really fucked up character, and it's clearly this very autobiographical novel that Richard Price did before he got into true crime sort of stuff and gritty urban realism. And at one point, the narrator says, you know, I'd go on vacation, but the problem is my head would come with me. It seems like the message, the way this was taken... Well, you said you don't object to the frat boy enjoying this from the shallow end of the pool. Was there any point where you were like, this song is being misinterpreted. You guys are enjoying this for the wrong reason. (laughs) I object if non-too-much-joy fans are dismissive of the band, thinking that they understand us based on the title of the song or the behavior of the audience. As I said, the song lent itself to the stage really well and that there were all kinds of different bits we could do. And not every single night, but a lot of times we'd crown either a king or a queen of beers where we'd bring somebody up on stage and we'd literally place a bottle of beer on their head. And we'd say, okay, if you can keep that bottle of beer on your head throughout the length of this song, we will give you Jay's 12-string Rickenbacker basically. And of course, we couldn't afford to give them the Rickenbacker, so we'd make sure that one of us slammed into them and knocked the beer off their head before it was over. But that that wasn't the only thing, but shit like that, it was always fun. I have no objection to audiences being drunken idiots and getting all their demons out. That's what we were for, really. And I won't make you tell the story. People can look on your website for the story of how this led to you guys doing a Budweiser commercial and your initial objections to that. Yeah, that's a long story. But it is a case just to illustrate of this being taken at face value, whereas if anything, if it's making a comment, it seems to be making that whatever marketing guy came up with the King of Beers or the people that was meant to appeal to are pathetic. Um, is yeah. That- Yeah, although actually, now that you mentioned marketing, I realized this is something I'd sort of forgotten about this song. This song sprang out of two things. There was the title, which I had written down, and I was like, okay, that's going to be a song one day. And then I was just waiting, you know, for inspiration to strike and tell me what the lyric was going to be. And then the first lyric that I got was, she's so beautiful, I swear I'd sleep with her brother, which is a literal thing that Jay Blumenfield actually said to me one night. We were both competing for the same woman. And then those two things came together. But where that title came from, obviously, you know, Budweiser calls itself the King of Beers, but there was a John Prine song called Out of Love. And I love John Prine, and he's a great songwriter. Out of Love is not a great John Prine song, not even a great song. But what it is, it's a really interesting failed experiment where he tried to build a song almost entirely out of beer campaigns. So the chorus is, when I'm out of love, I'm out of you, which is a play on a different Bud campaign, which is when you're out of Bud, you're out of beer. And so he starts there, and I think he had a co-writer on the song, and so they're really just goofing around on all these different Miller High Life and Coors, Rocky Mountain Springwaters, and and they're just taking all these marketing campaigns and trying to turn them into metaphors for love. And at one point in that song, as a sort of toss-off, it's not in a verse, it's not in a chorus, I think it's in a bridge, he goes, I'm the king of beers. And I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, what a fucking waste. That's not a throwaway line in a song about beer. That's the song about beer. 
And so I jotted it down. I was like, I'm going to write the song that John Prine should have written. And that was the genesis of this. Oh, one other thing I'll throw in here, because this is my favorite bit of trivia about the song. I had occasion many years after Too Much Joy was was a going concern to play with some actual legitimate professional New Orleans musicians. And it was part of this big artist activism retreat where there was like 10 or 12 different artists and this trombone band in New Orleans called Bonarama. They were the house band. And you'd go on this retreat for like three days and learn about Katrina and how it was a man-made disaster, not a natural disaster. And it was all about how artists could do more effective activism. And at the end of the retreat, you put on a concert for the public. And so Bonarama, this New Orleans band, was the house band. And they learned everybody's songs. And they wrote New Orleans horn parts for whatever song you told them you wanted a New Orleans horn part for. So I gave them King of Beers, and I had never, you know, we are not music readers or let alone writers, so I'd never seen musical notation for one of my songs. So I was seeing the sheet music that Mark Mullins, the the main guy in, in Bonarama, had written out. Uh, I was like, oh, that's what my song looks like. I had no idea. <laughs> I look a little closer, and when it gets to the bridge, the notation literally just says, crazy. <laughs> so that was his instruction to the rest of the band. It's literally just go crazy here. It doesn't matter. I have no idea what the fuck they're doing. The bridge, I mean, that that's an immense guitar solo. And then when it bridged lyrics come in on top of that chord progression, it almost feels like a different song. Like that could be its own on reflection. That's probably my favorite part of the song. Yeah, cool. It's hard for me to remember the genesis of it because it evolved so much over decades of playing it live. So the live bridge is no longer the studio bridge. Mm. I do remember fucking around with it a lot in pre-production and definitely in the studio with Paul Fox. So I, I can't remember how much it morphed in the studio. But the way you just described it suggests to me that this is one where, you know, Jay had one take on the song, Sandy had another take on the song, and we glommed them all together and said, oh, that sounds like a chorus. That sounds like a verse. What about my bit? Oh, that can be the bridge probably how it happened but maybe not well we should move to the second song for a a different take on your compositional process yours and jay's jay who i would love to talk to at some point after a decent interval has passed okay donner lake this is from the first wonder lick album 2002 i was reading about how this whole band project came about that although too much joy did not officially disband you had moved across the country to do these various tech jobs is that right is that why you did the move we moved because I met my wife in San Francisco. She moved ah. to New York to be with me because that's where the band was. And for eight years, we were living in New York City and trying to make a go of the band. But we didn't like winners. We didn't like New York. We knew we wanted to be in California one day. And at least once a year, I would say to, to Donna, my wife, I would say, hey, this time next year, either the band will have broken through or will have broken up. And either way, we'll be able to live wherever we want. And after eight years, I finally accepted neither of those two things were probably ever going to happen. I was like, you know what? Why don't we just do what we want to do and let the band adapt to us rather than the rest of what I'd been doing with my life. So we just moved to California because we wanted to be in California. I didn't move for a job or anything. And after me, Jay moved to LA. So I was in San Francisco. Jay was in LA. The other guys were in New York. Okay, so the It's Project, which was the other, the remaining three guys was between those. The It's was written and recorded before I moved and then did its first batch of shows. It's only batch of shows really after I'd moved. I had played with them once or twice, I think. And then there was a thought of me flying back out to do this mini tour. And at that point, I was like, you know, guys, I mean, the whole point of the It's was it was after Sandy had left the band. So Bill Whitman had taken over for him. And the It's songs were very deliberately an attempt to write more straightforward relationship songs, love songs. A lot of the lyrics 
There's more contributions from other members, mostly Bill, lyric-wise, than on anything ever done with Wonder Liquor, Too Much Joy, which is like 99.99% my words, although speaking is a hive mind for the band. And there's way less singing from me on it. So at a certain point, I was like, yeah, you guys go on with that. I'm happy to keep contributing lyrics and stuff, but I don't really feel a need to be involved in the recording or the performing of them. You had pointed that album to me, that that was Bill singing most of that stuff, that just in hearing the later live album from you guys, that his voice really stands out. So you just drafted your producer into the band who had a lead quality vocal. It was weird. The way he joined the band was, so it was between Mutiny and Finally. We were recording Mm -hmm. what ultimately became finally and we were playing shows here and there for money but sandy had gotten a full-time gig and it was harder and harder for him to get to rehearsals and he was clearly just not as into it anymore so he ultimately just said hey guys i think it's time for me to leave and we were fine with that but the big problem was we had a college show booked like two weeks later and college shows they pay like five grand Mm -hmm. but at the time that was like we needed that five grand and so we were sort of asking ourselves who can learn our songs really fast and bill who'd produced mutiny had taken to joining us on stage when we played shows in New York or in D.C. and just adding extra guitar. So he knew most of the songs and he could play bass even though he's mostly a guitar player. And so he joined the band just to do that show and it worked so well. We're like, well, you know, why don't you keep playing shows with us while we hunt for another bass player? And eventually we all realized, we're like, hey, you want to do this full time? He's like, sure. All right. So that thing happens, the transition, you moving away, but then this Wonderlick project. So this was created just as a studio thing with you and Jay, right? It's weird looking back because I guess the gap between recording the first Wonderlick thing and the last Too Much Joy thing was only four years. At the time, it felt like an eternity. It felt like I was done with music. And the industry and uh, the ups and downs of our careers had been pretty freaking demoralizing. So I thought I was just done with it. But you can't actually stop writing. So I was always writing lyrics, and I just had no one to sing them with, nothing to do with them, no, no music, nobody to write music for them. So Jay and I just started getting together. We were like, hey, let's get together and write some songs. And so he was in L.A., I was in San Francisco. We meet in like Santa Barbara or somewhere in between and just get a motel room, you know, on the water and like get drunk and create. And there was the great thing about it is it was non-goal oriented. Literally, the only goal was to get together and be friends again and have fun. There was no plans to record it, let alone release it. And so we, we did that a couple of times. And then it was 2000. You know, I'd been working at Listen.com for a little while and I was starting to appear at panels and talk about the future and how subscription services were the future and music was moving away from being a product and towards being a service. And I realized, hey, this is kind of dumb. Here I am like turning into this sort of like internet advocate visionary guy and my band doesn't even have a website i need to build a too much joy website so i started building the too much joy website and i was like well this is all so backward looking and it's all about the past that's sort of depressing there should be something new here so i called up jay and i said hey do you want to record one of these wonderlich songs and we'll just like put it up as a free mp3 and we'll give it away like we won't even try to sell it so we got together, we actually recorded three, and Donner Lake, which we're about to listen to, was one of the first three songs Wonderlick recorded. And we had so much fun, we came up with a plan to do one a month and give away one song a month as a free MP3. And the response was so encouraging. Basically, people just started donating money on the website to keep us recording. And we made literally made more money overnight than we ever had from Warner Brothers, which is easy to say because I never made a penny from Warner <laughs> Brothers, basically. And so Wonderlick became an ongoing thing. And Donner Lake was the second Wonderlick song ever written and recorded.
in another guy to do drum programming and things. I wondered if as somebody who is not as strong a guitarist or something, and I noticed you play some keyboards on some more recent stuff, if you've used the advance of technology as a way of, I mean, I do this myself. Now, I, I can extend the reach of my fingers because I can program in stuff. <laughs> Was that not a temptation for you? Definitely playing around with technology was absolutely a temptation and became a, a huge part of the way we worked together. But it wasn't really planned like that. It was more, I had some lyrics, Jay had some melodies, he could play guitar, 
we lucked into finding a producer. Literally, just we found a studio in the Yellow Pages in Oakland, and we went into this dump of a place in Oakland. And the guy that we found there, this tall German dude named Johannes Luli, was just, I don't know, he was just like a perfect match for us. He's fantastic, and he works really, really fast and really, really well. And he can make professional-sounding stuff using Pro Tools and all these other nifty things way faster than anyone else we've ever worked with. And so when we first went in, it was a deliberately different approach than Too Much Joy in that it wasn't a live band playing. And in fact, as we got more and more comfortable with that approach over time, we stopped going in even with songs. So the first three songs, I had complete lyrics, and Jay and I sat down the night before we went into the studio and wrote out the music and the melodies for them. But we had literally no idea how we were going to do the rhythm section. So we just started building things out of beats and samples. And the rhythm section on this is all samples, just of stuff we liked, frankly. And that turned into an approach we've used for over, you know, God, almost 15 years now, where we just go into the studio with some ideas. And over time, we learned to trust Johannes more and more as a drum programmer. But basically, we just find beats we'd like, and we'd imitate them. And we'd build rhythm tracks out of just random stuff, like, you know, keys jingling or noises that we heard. One time when Jay's wife was pregnant, we built a rhythm track out of he'd just gotten the sonogram. And so he had the recording of the sonogram. So there's a rhythm track that's built out of the heartbeat Mm. of his unborn child. And that was an incredibly liberating way of working. I mean, we knew we were going to end up with a song at the end of it, but we had no preconceptions about where it was going to go. And that was frankly only possible. That would have been a huge indulgence. I, I remember in the 80s and 90s, as I was recording, reading about bands that would go into the studio and write in the studio. Back then, that was such an expensive proposition. That just seemed like such a, a millionaire's indulgence to my mind. It had never occurred to us to walk into a studio without a complete song where every single part was worked out and had been rehearsed a hundred times so you could nail it on the first, second, or third take. Actually creating in the studio became affordable with Pro Tools. So everything that Too Much Joy and, and the It's had done had been recorded analog on two-inch tape where you had to do it in real time. And the ability in Pro Tools just visually to see a visual representation of the audio you've just recorded. And also you can get really creative. So Jay and I just got in the habit of when we learned like how great Johannes was with all these tools, we just point at something and go, make that upside down, make that backwards. And he'd understand what we were saying and he would do it. We go, Oh, that sounds awesome. So Wonderlick songs are almost deliberately written and recorded in a way that they can't be replicated live, which is almost the exact opposite of the way too much joy used to work. Let's talk about this one in particular, the lyric itself and how this got the melody applied to it. It was a little harder to make out lyrics on this one, just sort of listening off the cuff so that the immediate impression is that, you know, you've got this nice, joyful by a lake song, (laughs) but then there's obviously this death hovering about it. And then even just paying a little attention that, oh no, it's about Donner Lake as in the Donner party. And you spell that out explicitly in the second half of the first verse. This is more the way I write songs now, and it goes back to what we were saying about King of Beers not being a character. It's just literally me expressing my drunken idiot self. Donner Lake is both a true story and something that's not about me at all, even though it came out of a literal in the sense that my wife and daughter and I had an awesome time one summer day at Donner Lake. And it's a really weird place to have an awesome day because, A, it's an alpine lake. and I mean, it's just in this gorgeous setting. And I remember laying on the beach and swimming in the water with my wife and my kid and having a great time. And you're looking up at the summits of these peaks that surround you and there's snow up there, even in August. 
And you can't help but think about the fact that where you are in the winter can be covered by 20 feet of snow. And that once upon a time, a party of almost 90 people tried to go through that pass in the winter and didn't make it and literally had to eat each other in order for some of them to survive. So the song's not about me. It's about a specific place. It's about a mood. And it's doing something that I'd never really bothered to do in too much joy. It's like, oh, I had this thought. And I was like, okay. The thought itself may or may not be interesting, but what makes me think it's worth sharing? Like, let's dive deeper into that. So this song has a very deliberate beginning, middle, and end. I wrote the complete thing as we were driving home that day after our day at Donner Lake, which was at the end of a week in Lake Tahoe. And it's about a three-hour ride home. And I said to Don, I was like, can you drive home? I have this idea. And so I wrote the song from beginning to end on that three-hour drive home, which is rare. And this is probably, as I said before, na 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 Sorrow is probably my favorite single line I've ever written. This song is probably my favorite complete song that I've ever written because it knows what it's doing and it does it. It's not necessarily about me. If anything, I'm one of those dudes in the kayak watching some young couple be a little friskier than they probably should be in a public place. And then just they or I are thinking about like how ephemeral those things can be. It's about having a great time in an absolutely beautiful location, but a location that can't help but drive home how ephemeral moments like that can be and how utter horror and devastation is equally possible. And that actually, weirdly enough, turned out to be the theme of the entire first Wonderlick record. All the other, I think, 11 or 12 songs on that record are basically about different takes on the same thing. Well, and the, the emotional heart of the song, again, is the bridge. Or maybe this is just one of the latter verses. There are times when you imagine that your life's a big mistake and times that you feel as you did on Donner Lake. You can tally all the times in two columns and a chart or just go find someone to whom you'd gladly feed your heart. That You, you get to do the cannibalism thing one more time yep. to cap off the nice... Uh, you can't say that part is written from a character's perspective. That's just a, a generally profound sentiment. It's attempting to be anyway. So yeah. And the thing is, there's cannibalism throughout the song. You know, there's lady fingers, which is just an easy gag. There's the dude nibbling on his lover's ear. There's the actual cannibalism of the Donner party. And then there's the realization at the end. So it was my actual realization as I was driving home. And I think I actually said this to my wife. I'm pretty sure Abby, our daughter was asleep in the back because I don't think I would have said this if she was awake. I was like, you know, I would be happy for you to eat me in order for you to live. So if we're ever in a situation like that, just know it's okay. You can look at folks in swimsuits and wonder how they'd taste. You know, when I was looking for these lyrics online, I didn't find the whole thing, but somebody had in a, I think a Pop Matters review was reviewing this album and saying how even though the style is different, it's very much obviously the same lyricists as Too Much Joy. And I had quoted this as, you can look at fucks in swimsuits and wonder as if just assumed that given your personality, you would be using the opportunity to ridicule the people around you and call them fucks in swimsuits. I just thought that was a strange... Yeah, well, I guess we did. Way back in Clowns, we were talking about idiots and Speedos, so it was not an unreasonable assumption. <laughs> but it was it was not an unreasonable assumption about my 23-year-old self. It was a less reasonable assumption about me in my 30s. This uh, metaphor of sinking down, this image is used all over pop music, and it never quite means the same thing. I'll sink down with you until we both drown or drink our fill. In other words, drown or drink our fill of what the glory of this moment in our lives. What is the sinking down? I mean, that it's kind of negative connotation, but what is this saying something about how the relaxation enjoyment of the moment has this negative aspect and just in the same way that 
you're contemplating cannibalism the whole time or it's both it's basically saying like hey i would happily die here today with you i would die with you metaphorically just in you know i'd get lost in this bliss of love and i would literally die for you if that was what it took for one of us to make it out it's basically realizing that that's a big part of love is accepting that it's not going to be forever literally because one or both of you are going to die there's a nice spontaneity. It's kind of the thing that redeems any sort of techno values that are in the album is that there's such a spontaneity with the singing itself and the way you're describing really the whole production. Is this you and Jay singing together live on the same track or is this overdubbed? That's a good question. I don't recall. Generally speaking, what we do, and this has evolved over the three Wonderlick albums, but because this was one of the first songs we wrote, we were sticking to our old habits of having something complete before we went in, but doing something new and that we had literally no idea like how the bass and drums were going to come about. And over time, once we realized like, oh, it's easy. You don't need a drummer. You don't need a bass player. I mean, sometimes we hire them because it's fun. But once we realized that, we literally got to the point where we didn't even walk into the studio with songs anymore. So that spontaneity is a very important part of the way Wonderlick works, down to the point where a lot of times we won't even have a melody or we won't have lyrics. I'll still be writing the lyrics as Jay is coming up with a melody. So more often than not, what happens is we'll eventually get to a point where there's something to sing. The track has been built. And whether or not we have a melody, whoever feels like, oh, I got an idea, will go into the vocal booth and stand by the microphone and sing his idea. And maybe he'll go through the whole song. And then the other one will go in and do the whole thing. And then sometimes we just agree. It's like, oh, that one sounds better. Use that one. Other times we're like, Johannes, we're going to go get dinner. You do a comp and you choose which one's best on which line. Sometimes like there's a song on Topless at the Arco Arena, You First, where we had no melody and Jay just said, I know this. And he went in and he sang the verse. I was like, that's it. There's a couple of songs like that. Most of them are on Topless. Fuck Yeah is another one where Jay just went in and sang the entire verse. I'm like, I literally have nothing to add to that. Other times we each do a couple of passes. And usually we have this thing we call the go-off take where either Jay says, oh, I want to do a go-off take. Or I say, Jay, I want you to do a go-off take where he just goes in and improvises harmonies. And he intentionally over-emotes all over the place. And that's where a lot of the best, most Mick Jonesy bits come in. But in order to get them, that means there's a whole bunch of utterly embarrassing stuff left on the cutting room floor. And I will forever love and admire Jay's ability to go there. I just lack that ability for whatever reason. He's utterly unembarrassed when he does stuff like that. And it's maybe only three times out of 10 that he hits on the absolute right, perfect thing. But that's all you need. I guess it was a matter of working it out over time live. In King of Beers, in the last chorus i mean that's with the hear me roar and the i'm invincible i have no fear the fact that you go into like a little girl voice for just a line there which is just funny for that line but at the end of this song it's jay that breaks into this sort of uh i was remembering the uh the weemawek weemawek (laughs) (laughs) that he goes into this high little thing as the chorus is repeating the third time but just the spontaneity in the way that when you're repeating the last phrase a bunch of times and there's obviously even more than two voices in there so you're it's additional overdubs that have been left in maybe you're trying different things it's a specific thing that johannes came up with he calls it the canon where there can be like 12 18 24 there's a point may not be on this song but it's a technique we've used 
multiple times where we wind up with dozens of voices in rounds or like row, row, row your boat. And again, it's the type of thing that would take forever to do if you were doing it analog, but digitally you sing it once and you have it 25 times or you sing it 25 times, but you don't have to sing it 25 times for three minutes, right? Sure. Yeah. And the end of Donner Lake was one of the first times we came up with that or Johannes came up with that and we loved it so much. Jay's a great one for anytime there's something that works. He wants to do it always on every song. And my role is sort of to say, not this time. Let's do it that time. Although, to be fair, the other rule we came up with, and it's an important part of the Wonderlick writing and recording process, is you're not allowed to say no, which is, again, very different than Too Much Joy. Too Much Joy was basically whatever idea wound up on tape was the one that survived this gauntlet of four band members with veto power over everything. Whereas in Wonderlick, we were deliberately trying to get away from that. And so it doesn't matter how stupid Jay thinks my idea is or I think his idea is, we get to try it. And then, you know, ultimately you have to make a decision about whether you keep it or not, but you never don't try something. Now, just the overall incessant 16th note rhythm that's going on here, was that just what Johannes started with or was the initial guitar part, you know, because there's this fast electric guitar part that's kind of in the background in most of the song. Was that a reaction to what Johannes had come up with the rhythm or was that really the basis in why Johannes was doing what he was doing? No, I think everything in this one came out of the multiple different drum tracks on there. Uh-huh from multiple different sources. And this is the way we build a lot of Wonderlick songs. We start with a rhythm and we build a bed. And then MJ was very conscious of like not wanting to start with guitar. So we usually start with more ephemeral stuff. It's a very realistic tambourine. I thought it was a real tambourine. The thing I I specifically remember Johannes adding in there while we were at dinner and we came back and he was so proud of himself. There's an owl that hoots and it becomes a recurring motif. Like, ooh, ooh. And it's actually, he came back, he's like, you're going to like this. And he played it for us. We're like, oh my God, you're a genius. We do love it. So turning back to that Too Much Joy gauntlet for our third song. So this is the one that I I always say, pick something that didn't quite work. So this is Just Like a Man from the Mutiny album, 1994. Give your little intro. What did you think did not work about this? I wouldn't go so far as saying it didn't work because this song wasn't quite a staple of the live shows, but was also great fun to play live, which was, to my mind, was always the measure of success or failure of a Too Much Joy song. So it's not so much that it didn't work as lyrically, it's not an approach I think I particularly excel at. So it was more of an experiment in that regard. And this is one where it is most definitely a character, literally a female murderess, who is very much not me. Was this inspired by a real thing? Thing. I, I know oh, you have a little. There's a sample in the outro yep. of the murderess confessing on the stand, and basically, because she turned state's evidence, it was this really sordid thing on court TV. I mean, I love the song. I think it's a fine song, and I love playing it live. It's just not something I did a lot of. <laughs> Yes. 
you didn't get sued for using the sample this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you talk about sampling, the funny thing is, so Son of Sam I Am, Too Much Joy's second album, is full of samples. We were not a hip-hop band, but we loved hip-hop, and especially the first couple of Public Enemy records. And we wanted to take that aesthetic and basically just honor all our sources and all our heroes and drop them into songs everywhere. So Son of Sam I Am has samples from U2, Big Country, Lou Reed, The Pixies, Bozo the Clown, which is what got us in trouble, Marlo Thomas from Free to Be You and Me, and lots of other things. And we recorded that record for Alias and put it out. Warner Brothers happily picked up that record and re-released it. Then we made Serial Killers, and then we made Mutiny. And in between the time that Son of Sam I Am was re-released by Warner Brothers and the time that we were recording Mutiny, there was this big lawsuit, the Bismarcky decision, where a judge, an idiot judge, frankly, ruled against Bismarcky. Gilbert O'Sullivan had sued him for a sample and basically quoted the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, in his decision uh-huh. and just utterly changed the trajectory of popular music in the 90s. I, I really think it was like one of the worst things that ever happened to music. And so when we submitted the Masters for Mutiny, there was this new form that Warner required us to fill out, asserting that there were no samples in there. And there actually are some samples in there, right? So some we had to take out. Others, in fact, in this song, at the end of the song before it and at the beginning of this particular song, it's not a sample. It's an actual recording of Tommy Vinton, who was a New York City police officer, responding to a call. He's like, man with a gun, man with a gun. That's our drummer as a cop in real life. And so we submitted this thing saying there's no samples. And they came back with a sample report quoting little bits of songs where they're like, well, this sounds like a sample. And they quoted that bit of Tommy. And we're like, well, it's not, a, it's, it's, it's a recording, but it's him. He, it's like his voice. And they go, yeah, but New York police department might own the copyright. So they went from this total free and easy. Yeah, you guys do whatever you want to this insane. You can't even include a recording of yourself if we're (laughs) unclear of where the IP belongs. It was horrible. So I guess it doesn't matter if I acknowledge this now, but there is a sample of the murderess that I recorded on my VCR off of court TV in the outro where you hear her say, I made myself, and she's crying as she says it. She's like, I made myself look broader and wider, so I look bigger, so I look like a man. That was the genesis of the whole song. I was, I'm pretty sure I was stoned when I was watching Court TV. I did that a lot at, back then. And it was just this profound moment to me. I was like, God, there's so much in there to unpack. And I was like, she says she was being just like a man and she killed her lover's wife. And now she's blaming him that he talked her into it as like, but she pulled the trigger and he's the one on trial for murder. And like, she's going to jail, but not as much because the state needed her to prove the case against him. But she's the one who did the killing. It was all fucked up. So we just mixed it down really, really low in the mix, but it's there if you listen. And this sounds like it probably originated with the, it's a riff song, or was this one that you had lyrics first and... This was absolutely a riff song. I'm assuming it was a Sandy riff. You can just tell from listening to it. This is one where the band was jamming in a rehearsal studio, working out different parts that sounded good together. And then we're like, okay, Tim, what do you have for us? So the lyric was written to the music. And this was a case where I was like, oh, there's this thing I've been obsessing about recently. There's probably a song there. Let me see what I can come up with. And the, the first verse is pretty much just her verbatim testimony. You know, I had to change some of the words and just to make it scan the way the melody went, but it's basically just what she said on the stand. It's a really, really fucked up story. And then the second verse is just me trying to put myself into her head after she committed the murder, but before she got arrested. 
and trying to imagine what that would be like and not doing a particularly good job, I don't think. This one's got a lot more going on musically than it does lyrically. I remember specifically Tommy Vinton, the drummer, is doing a double bass drum pedal uh-huh. um, because <laughs> that thing always fucking broke when we tried to play this thing live. And there's that one drum fill he does toward the end of the song. It's just before the last outro chorus, I think. That fill, he had it in his head exactly what he wanted to do. I think we recorded that bit probably about 23 times. <laughs> Every one sounded better than the last one to me. And I was like, we have it. He's like, no, no, I didn't. It can be better. And I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> Until he finally got whatever he was hearing in his head. It's like, sounds like it did the first time to me, but I have no rhythm. So what do I know? You pass the vocal back and forth between you and it sounds like Sandy there in the verses, but yet it's all from the same point of view. It's this woman. Is that just something that came up in rehearsal of that would be cool to pass the vocal around? That's the way we always wrote and recorded. It's Mm -hmm. just who sounds bad. There was never, probably to our detriment, I think, commercially, but not creatively, you won't really find a Too Much Joy song where there's a consistent through voice on every single line and through the chorus, we trade off who's doing leads, kind of like the band used to, although they would have songs where, okay, that's a Levon song, that's a Richard Manuel song, but more often than not, like they'd be trading off, maybe not mid-line, but from line to line. We weren't necessarily inspired by that because I didn't really start listening to the band a lot until after we'd recorded a lot of stuff. But once I did, I was like, oh, we're not the only ones doing this. But for them, they did it just because they had three fucking awesome singers. So why wouldn't you want all their voices in the mix? For us, we were doing it just because it took three almost okay singers to make one good one. But yeah, we never felt beholden to, oh, it doesn't make sense. It's the same character. So it has to be the same voice. It was just what sounds best. Well, the fact that you create this very distinct character with this falsetto in the choruses, I mean, so that's just you doing that, or did more than one of you take on that falsetto? That's me multi-tracked falsetto. Okay. okay. I do it from time to time, usually late in a rehearsal when I'm drunk, and nine times out of ten, it's ridiculous, and then sometimes we're like, okay, that can actually work. Is that the kind of thing, or maybe there are other things when singing live, that if you're blasting through this stuff very high that your voice is hoarse for the rest of the show. I I used to do that regularly. I don't know if I just scarred my throat or what, but (laughs) as long as we were touring and recording, I could do anything. Like Bill always called it my gruff voice. He's like, okay, do the gruff voice now. And as long as I was doing it regularly and constantly, I never had any problems. Then we stopped playing for 10 years. And then we did a, not a reunion show, but we got together. When Tommy retired from the NYPD, his sister talked us into doing a show to celebrate. So we hadn't played for 10 years. And Sandy came back and we got the five of us together. And so we were rehearsing for like a week beforehand. And I literally lost my voice. Like, I mean, just from three days of rehearsal, trying to get back into that register and doing it as gung-ho as I remembered doing live. I was so out of practice. I was terrified. Like by the time the show came up, I wasn't actually going to be able to sing. So I just stopped talking for a couple of days. Yeah. I've noticed that on uh dead milkman, it seems like they even kind of switched who was the main lead singer after a while, because the main guy's voice just kind of got trashed over time. And by their last couple of hours. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I was never, I mean, Sandy and Jay were always like when we're in the studio we were going out to dinner and we were going to do vocal takes later in the night. They wouldn't eat cheese. And they were always, you know, we always had stacks and stacks of fishermen's friends in the studio to lozenge up their throats or whatever. I never really believed in any of that stuff. I remember touring with OMD and the lead singer was kind of like he wouldn't talk for two hours before the show and he'd be backstage 
sipping tea and dipping honey in it. And he'd give us all his tips for protecting your voice. I'm like, dude, I'm from a fucking punk rock band. I don't like this does not apply. So I don't know. There's a part of me. This is probably just stupid macho bullshit on my, on my part, but I don't know. Part of me just looks with a lot of skepticism on that stuff. It's like, if you're going to shout, shout. That's all there is to it. The punk ethic. You know, it's hard to say this without sounding trite, but fuck it. Punk rock changed my life. It literally did. The moment the needle dropped on the first Clash record, the U.S. version of the first Clash record, because Clash City Records was the first song, my life changed. It literally made every record I had bought up until that point, all my Aerosmith, all my Kiss, the Neil Diamond that I had, impossible to listen to for at least a little while because all of that just suddenly seemed so artificial and what I was listening to sounded so true and angry and raw and I just knew like instantly that's what I want to do so yeah I mean I can laugh at my romantic notions and everything but you know I'm 50 years old now I still believe this shit well in this course at least it sounds like you're still channeling uh, your inner ACDC yeah I, I going for it anyway this was about as muscular and heavy in a non-punk way that we got on stage. This one's actually somewhat musical. and It's more heavy metal than punk. And when I looked up the lyrics for this, for the chorus, it just said, with my husband's gloves on my tiny hands. But listening to you sing it, it's something, something, tiny hands, husband's glove, my hands. So what are you actually saying there? If I'm remembering correctly, it's, husband's glove, my tiny hands, husband's glove, my hands. Walk <laughs> like as bigger, like as a man, walk just like a man. Okay, so it's not actual sentences. That's, that's... No, no, I had written out what she testified, but then it didn't work with the meter and the melody we'd come up with. But I didn't want to lose what she was saying. Uh-huh. So whenever there's a choice between being literal and sounding good, we go for sounding good. Well, and this giant, whoa, 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 I'm blameless, and just this big course of voices thing at the end. Where'd this come from? That's just having fun in the studio. That's my favorite part of the whole song. Yeah. It, I mean, it sounds awesome the way Bill produced it. Also sounded good live. It, you know, I think I before I said King of Beers is unfuck upable live. This one is fuck upable just because it's complicated musically, but vocally, as you said, you'd think that falsetto would be hard. It's actually easier than singing in a normal voice and, and hitting the notes. We have a lot of songs with really complicated harmonies that are either awesome live or utterly embarrassing. Unfortunately, it tends to be our big singles are the ones that are really hard to pull off live, like Donna Everywhere, Crush Story. We could just maul those some nights. If you hit a bum note, the song falls apart. King of Beers and Just Like a Man, are, they've got a lot more armor on them. They're really, really hard to do wrong by vocally. Well, I remember finding it kind of a, an unheard of concept in listening to harmonies. I think it was a, I heard the Hooters live on TV and the harmony strategy was one guy singing the melody and the other guy's yelling. Like that's <laughs> harmony. <laughs> like, wait, you could do that. That actually works. Yeah. That was pretty much our approach, except when I was lead, it tended to be yelling and then we just put pretty harmonies on top of it. Or when you're doing the three-part harmony, you're all the way on the bottom, but then for the third line, you're jumping up to the top and yelling over everybody else. It's more of an actual chorus of voices rather than this is the lead guy and these are the background guys. I know we've said that five times here, but <laughs> there's not too many bands that do this. Yeah, but it's easier to do in the studio when you're isolated. The problem is when you're all singing into the same microphone live, there's this natural human inclination to just match what the other person is doing. So a lot of times we basically trade parts. Yep. Well, speaking of, so I guess we're moving to the last song here, which we're just going to introduce and leave folks with. This is from your most recent thing. This super album, Wonderlick, 
this is sounding more like an actual band here. I mean, you, you said you got a full rhythm section and a keyboardist and just for the recording or that this is meant to be a live unit at this point. So Wonderlick's put out three records now. And the first one, the debut was sort of an accidental concept album. Mm-hmm. The next two were deliberate concept albums. So Super is a song cycle about superheroes, about actual real life human beings who are superheroes. It's Genesis was... Jay was doing a lot of Wonderlick songs come about because Jay's a TV producer. And so he needs a theme song for his shows. And a lot of times we'll write a song for a show and then go like, oh, there's more here. So he was doing a show that sadly never aired about actual human beings who dress up like superheroes and fight crimes. It's an actual thing that goes on. And he needed a theme song for it. So he wrote one of the good guys. And I was like, God damn, this is a fascinating idea. I want to write more songs about these dudes. So Extraordinary People is the first song on that album. And the whole the thing is, we'd just done this 16-track concept album called Topless at the Arco Arena that had taken us years to finish. Not because it was the stunning work of art or anything, but just because there was so much downtime in between the periods of time Jay and I could get in the studio together. So the original plan for Super was, okay, everything we've done to this point has been totally technologically created from the ground up from scratch. Super is going to be the opposite. It's going to be 10 songs, three minutes each, done with a live band. We're going to bang it out in two weeks and it's all going to be about superheroes. And then you know, we'll, we'll release it like you know a month after Topless at the Arco Arena comes out. It's like, nobody would be expecting that. That was the idea. And then it took us three years to finish. This is an example of what we were trying to do at the beginning. It's the first song. It was one of the first songs we recorded with a live band in a studio in San Francisco. But then we weren't so satisfied with the way the recording worked out. So we ended up, I love the riff. So I think we kept the piano from the first session. And then we hired a different, down in Johannes's studio, he ended up moving to LA, down in LA. We brought in a different bass player and drummer. So it sounds live. It was originally recorded live. But it was actually all the different bits you're hearing while they were all played live. They were not all played live simultaneously. <laughs> and they were recorded like three years apart. And I think the song was originally called Pissing Off Police. But then I didn't like the I, – I ended up not being satisfied with the lyric. And we came up with Extraordinary People. And it just – I don't know. It served as a really good kickoff for the album. And it's one of the most recent things we've done. So it's a good sort of intro into if you want to hear more Wonderlick, this is a good place to start. Right. So you were saying Ordinary Man was the name of your fake superhero here. Yeah, because they're literally ordinary people without superpowers. They just dress up in costume and try to prevent crime in random cities. And the police aren't too thrilled with it. So Ordinary Man is the actual superhero. And the conceit of this song is that the people that Ordinary Man has to do battle with are the extraordinary people or people who think they're special and different and above. They're the real supervillains. And that's, that is not my idea. It's an idea I lifted. And in fact, a lot of the lyrics are lifted verbatim from a Henry Fairley essay from a collection called Bite the Hand That Feeds Me. He's one of the few conservative columnists I've ever read or conservative thinkers and writers I've ever read where I've thought to myself, oh, he has a point. So it's a very conservative lyric, but it's one I actually agree with. Yeah, I was looking him up. So he's not recent, right? He's more 60s, 50s? He started in the late 50s, I think, sort of. Mm-hmm. In, you know, He was part of the establishment in England, and then he came to D.C. He's this great character. He's like this dissolute, drunken English journalist, but brilliant. Well, and apparently established the term the establishment. That's his claim to fame. And had horrible, horrible things to say about George Will, so I like him. Well, I hope folks like the new tune. So the recent thing that you've been doing professionally, we were saying with this freeform development, you developed this which is a way of gamifying musicians' albums. 
right? Musician's output. In other words, you've described it in some of your uh, lectures as, look at how much money Candy Crush makes. They give away their content, but yet once you get in there, they have ways of pushing people up the pyramid, as the way you put it, in terms of getting them, well, if you actually like it, here's a little extra you could pay and get something. Is the app that you created for your own album here, which people can look on the the Apple I store, or I assume there's a Google equivalent? It's on Android and iOS, so look in Google Play, look in the App Store and iTunes. You can search for Wonderlic, and this app for Super will come up. I wouldn't exactly call it gamifying music, because that's kind of a marketing jargon. (laughs) That was just something from an article I read about it, yes. (laughs) We're just taking abstract lessons from free-to-play mobile gaming distribution and applying them to the music space and seeing where they might fit. And a general idea is you can literally give music away for free and end up making more money than if you were selling it in the first place. And these apps actually accomplish that. And how is that working for you with this particular album? Oh, it's working great. You know, I mean, Spotify pays out a fifth of a penny per play. Pandora pays out a third of a penny per play. This app is earning us currently, I think, 18 cents a play. The model, it works. And basically, you can get my album for free and it can come with all the goodies that albums had when I was growing up. There's lyrics, there's credits, there's photos, there's a lyric video in there. It will be updated with more stuff over time. So it's a much more engaging and immersive experience. You know, when I was growing up, when I got London Calling, I just lay down on the couch and I just inhaled the lyrics, right? I studied the cover. I looked at every picture on the liner notes. I looked at the secret messages they scrawled in in the dead space in the vinyl between the end of the last track and the label. It was an experience and we've kind of lost that. Like, you know, there's more people listening to more music than ever before, but they're engaging with it in this really shallow way. It's become this background phenomenon. So what we're trying to do is give people more stuff so the experience can be more foregrounded. Well, good luck with that. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. This was a blast. I I enjoy talking in insane detail about my own creations.
Yay, Tim Quirk. After we finished the official podcast, I did talk to him a little bit more. Tried to run my little aesthetics lecture by him. You know that thing about how all music criticism is misguided? Instead, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the person who made it. Try to understand why they would find that good. And that's how to appreciate music, not judging. Anyway, he didn't buy it. There's not enough of it to present it to you as some bonus audio or anything like that. However, I'm excited that he did name drop in the course of our discussion Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist who talks a lot about musical taste and how it lines up with class. And directly because of that, he is going to appear on the Partially Examined Life, my philosophy podcast, on episode 137 to be released in mid-April, talking with me and the other fellows about Pierre Bourdieu's distinction. You can hear a little more about my views on musical taste, music appreciation, on the pilot song self-exam that I recorded. I'll link to it from the blog post for this episode, or you can go to partiallyexaminedlife.com and look for it. Again, that video I recorded is just supposed to be the first of many that will be up there, not by me, but by you, you musicians. I want to hear your song stories. I want to hear you explain your song. I want to understand you and why you write the way you do. So whether you've been writing for decades or have only written one song ever, just use your laptop or your tablet or your phone or whatever, and do a quick recording where you introduce yourself and then edit in the entirety of the recording of your song, and then you talk for maybe two to five minutes about the song in just the way that we do here. Upload it to your own YouTube channel. Send me the link at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I'll post it for all to see, and maybe you could end up here interviewed by me on this show. Now, if you enjoyed hearing Tim's thoughts as much as I did, go check out tbquirk.com, where, among other things, he's posted the transcripts of these presentations he's given at these pop conferences, one of which is the story about how the song King of Beers was, in fact, used for a Budweiser ad at one point and his feelings about the use of music in advertising. There's an awesome and hilarious extended analysis of Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell album, some more about sampling, and a lot more about music criticism and music appreciation. Now at TooMuchJoy.com, he's got song stories up there for really every track from the Serial Killers album, and you can learn there about Wonderlick and The It's, and the other Too Much Joy spinoff bands. And I provided other links to the things we discuss here in the blog post that goes with this episode at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. As you've noticed, we're presenting this without advertisements. So if you feel like supporting our efforts, you could make a donation there. Or better yet, use the Amazon portal on the right side of the page there to do any of your Amazon shopping. And I, that is my podcast entity, the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, will receive a cut of anything you purchase at no additional charge to you. But the immediate, most important thing you can do for Nakedly Examined Music is to spread the word. All right, thanks for listening. This is Mark Linton Meyer, signing off.